From Smashing the Plateau, I'm David Schreiner-Khan with Going Solo. In this show, we discuss building your own successful business after a late career job loss. I always say that if you're going to go out on your own, you have to make your bed and you have to wear shoes around your apartment or house. Uh, You can't do it barefoot. Today on episode 43 of Going Solo, I'm speaking with Andrew Schmertz. After 15 years as an employee in the media business, Andrew now runs an airline. Andrew has had his share of dealing with disruptions and knowing how to focus on and persevere to generate long-term success. In our current time of crisis, Andrew shares lots of strategies you can use to get past today's challenges. Stay with us to hear all the details. If you'd like to share your story on going solo, or if you know someone who would, please get in touch with me via our website at smashingtheplateau.com. Now let's welcome Andrew Schmertz. Andrew spent 15 years in the media business, serving as a reporter for NY1 and business anchor for WABC-TV. He was a senior exec at WNET-PBS when he co-founded Hopscotch Air. He was laid off from WNET and was faced with running a new airline. Andrew, welcome to the show. Thank you, David. Good to be here. Sounds pretty daunting being laid off and then having to run an airline. <laughs> right. Yeah, particularly, I, I know when you and I first got connected and we talked about doing this, that was before the age of coronavirus. And now yes. we are in the midst of it. And um, yeah, it certainly does sound pretty daunting being laid off from uh, a job in the media industry and running a new airline. Uh, We know that the media industry has been shaky for years and going through some disruptions. Media actually, particularly broadcast, is one of the areas where there's still activity. Everybody is still broadcasting. I'm not sure what what that's done to the current job market, but the airline industry certainly has been upended. And I'm sure we're going to dive into that a little bit. But before we get there, I actually want to go back to the time when you when you did get laid off from WNET. Oh, no, no. I I was just going to say, you know, the media industry is a industry where you have multiple jobs uh, throughout the course of a career. Few people end up in one place and spend their whole life there. Uh, So you're sort of used to disruption. And the media industry itself was being disrupted right around the time that I lost the job at WNET. So the actual layoff wasn't a total surprise. I was a senior manager so I knew the financials of the company. You know, it's a nonprofit. It's part of PBS. I knew that fundraising was down, that revenue was substantially down, and cuts were had to be made. And I was sort of the low end of the totem pole in the executive ranks back then, and I was the newest member into the team. It just happened quicker than I had expected it to happen. And uh, when it did, you know, I had already established the process. Uh, to launch a regional airline. And I can discuss how you go from the media business to the aviation business in a moment uh, with my business partner, Doug Oaken, who who I've known from college. But when I left and went into that job, I had to do that job for no money because the company was not really up and functioning at that point. And that was was a, a challenging and disruptive time. Yes. So you had plan B already in place before you got your notice. Yes. Yeah. I had made the decision. So my background is I'm also a pilot. And uh, we were caught up in the 2008 timeframe 
with the excitement of this air taxi concept. There are going to be hundreds of airplanes dotting the skies, small airplanes, a new way to travel, all of that nonsense, as it turned out to be. <laughs> but we were caught up in that, and we were in the process of raising money to start, start that business. Okay. And given the fact that the layoff wasn't timing that you necessarily expected, how did you feel when it first happened? Uh, you know, disappointed and concerned. Obviously, anybody facing a sudden layoff uh, without a huge amount of cash in the bank would be worried and also concerned for the new business. And part of what I think WNAT did in laying me off is they knew that I would be leaving at some point uh, within the course of the next year and that just the timing kind of forced their hand, I believe, because it was part of a a uh, company-wide layoff uh, during that process. I was involved in, in laying off close to 30% of the staff myself, uh, and then it multiplied from there. So it was a very challenging time, uh, but it also gave me the opportunity to focus on the new business, even if it was a little premature. Uh, because launching an airline is not an easy process. You can't just hang up a shingle and say, come fly with me. Uh, it's, it's a heavily regulated industry. And it needed somebody to devote full-time attention to it. So in the end, and looking back on it in hindsight, and I imagine uh, a lot of your guests say this, it was very good that, that it happened the way it did. Yeah, certainly yeah, for many, many of, uh, of our guests and, and people that I've worked with, the actual outcome of the layoff can be a good thing for the long term. In the short term, it can, it can be quite painful. Yeah, and it was. Uh, it, it involved, you know, me scaling down basically everything about how I lived my life. And as an executive at at PBS, you know, I was I was pretty well paid, so there was some cash in the bank. However, you know, you you don't have any visibility of when the next payment, the next check, is going to come through the door. And no matter how much money you have, you all of a sudden are faced with that anxiety of: Is it going to be three months, six months, a year? Uh, of not having any income, and what is what does that mean? Uh, PBS did some some great things, by the way. I should compliment them. It's, they just didn't kick you out the door, and beyond severance, they put you in a sort of outplacement management team. Uh, where I mean, I had kind of a place I was already going to, but it was an office where I could go to every day. I described it kind of like the old TV show Lost, if you will, where they were not quite in heaven and they were not quite alive. They just kind of were on this island. And that's kind of, it was a, it was a management company that, that took you in and gave you space to work, basically. I think it was more of relieving the guilt <laughs> of companies laying off their staff, but it was helpful. Okay. So you were kind of in managed limbo. Yeah. Managed limbo is a good, is a good <laughs> word. You dress up every day and you had some place to go and then nothing to do. <laughs> uh, yes, yes. So what did you do and how did you actually turn this into an opportunity? That's a good question. So I would initially basically, I had to do two things. So knowing that the company that we had found formed Hopscotch Air was at least a year away from producing enough revenue to support any sort of salary, I had to sort of gap fill. What was I going to do? How did I occupy my time? And the end result was I didn't find a solution to that. I spent the entire year uh, not really having having that solution. And, and part of the problem was I was transparent with potential employers. I was like, I'm not going to be here that long, but what can I do? And, and obviously, that's a negative when you're looking for a job. So I turned my attention to really kind of jumpstarting that business. 
the airline. Unfortunately, that process only works as fast as the government is willing to work on, on all of the certifications, of all the manuals, of all the details you need to get done. And we couldn't burn a lot of cash because we raised uh, minimum cash. We're, we're, we're an airline that went into business highly undercapitalized. Uh, we should probably have folded up shop and not pursued it, but we did. And, and we're still in business some 12 years later. But that was sort of the process that I kind of went through. Uh, and, it, and it was good from a head psychological space because I was doing some work. I was, was producing material at the end of the day. I could look back on and say I did A, B, and C, uh, even if it didn't have any initial monetary reward. Yeah. And talk to me a little more about that psychological process, because especially if you we're used to being in an environment where there were lots of other people that were part of your team or teams that you were interacting with. Suddenly you're going to, um, you did have a partner. So I'm assuming that the two of you probably had a lot of interaction, but not a lot of people um, perhaps to discuss the challenges that you're dealing with every day. It takes a lot of perseverance to keep at this for a year or more with no income. What were some of the things that went through your head and, and how did you deal with them? Yeah, no, that's a very good point. It's, it's a lonely process. I had always worked in media in a sort of corporate environment, uh, whether it was at New York One, at Business Week Television, WABC, or at, at PBS. And a corporate environment doesn't necessarily mean the suit and tie corporate environment, but it's an environment where there are, are other people, where you're having daily interactions with those people. and where, where there's a actual goal set that you should accomplish, a, a structured system in place. Even when you're in the thick of it and you think the place has no structure and is a complete chaos, there is inherently some structure built around it. And you take that out. And I did have a business partner, as you had mentioned, but, but you know he had another job and he lived on Long Island and I was pretty much on my own. Uh, if not doing the work by myself physically in a space on my own. And there are every challenge that you can imagine from being able to get up out of bed at a timely, timely fashion to making your bed <laughs> as a little detail. I always say that if you're going to go out on your own, you have to make your bed and you have to wear shoes around your apartment or house. Uh, you can't do it barefoot because then I like to think that if you're if you don't have your shoes on, the next thing you know, you're laying on your couch, and the next thing you know, you're taking a nap, and you're not accomplishing anything when you're taking a nap. So those are the challenges that I immediately faced was going from, let's say, 60 miles an hour with a bunch of people down to zero. It was whiplash. It was it was a sudden stoppage of that social network, even in a professional environment, that I had and so many other people have when they get laid laid off. And I'm not, I'm not really sure. That's one of the criticisms I have of the entire human resources process. Uh, and I think we're doing a better job of it today, but I'm not really sure that companies understand the psychological impact. And I, and I imagine it's far worse uh, for somebody who worked for a company for 20 or 30 years and then finds the rug pulled out from under them. Yeah, I, I've talked to many people who are exactly in that scenario, 20 to 30 years or more in some kind of corporate environment where there is that social network, whether it's a, a large corporation, a nonprofit, um, or even a, a smaller 
smaller company, but they have the social interaction. They have the structure that's built around the day-to-day work. And then they go out on their own as a consultant or a coach, or they're opening a professional service business as a solopreneur. And the, the social isolation is very challenging. It's very challenging. And you also have to recognize that people have, quote, friends at work. But the second the work stops, the friendships may try to linger. You may try to stay in contact with people until you realize that your only thing you had in common was the job you were doing. And uh, that's, that's very challenging. Exactly, exactly. So, Andrew, how long was it until your airline felt like it was sustainable? I don't, I don't think we ever feel like we're sustainable because it's an airline. Uh, there are challenges every step of the way, and we've always overcame those, came those challenges. I would think, but substantively, about 18 months after the event, uh, mid, I, I would say almost 2010, when the business, it was generating some revenue, when the business really started to generate enough revenue to become sort of self-sustaining. And by that, we had to grow the number of aircraft. We had to grow the number of pilots. And we had to really, we changed. This was a, this was a, where we were in a segment of a business that really didn't exist in the charter world. It was a small air taxi operation. And what I meant by that, we provide regional air service, you know, New York to Nantucket, drop off, turn, go, come back. Uh, no one was really doing that. And so we had to convince the public that we were we were in business and we were safe and we were operational. So that whole entire process took about those 18 months until it sort of spooled up. Uh, and now up until this crisis we were in, we have more demand than capacity, uh, especially in the summer months, uh, which is not a good thing to have. Um, it's, a, it's a good better than the flip side, uh, but it's a tough, tough place to be. Right, right. So it was seasonally cyclical. It is. That yeah. is right. It's very seasonal and cyclical. Yeah. Yeah. And how does a business like yours compare to the major airlines in terms of being able to deal with the current crisis? Well, no one is dealing with it particularly well, as you know. Uh, the airlines, uh, and I speak to friends at other airlines and other executives uh, at major airlines, including including uh, an airline like Delta, which was the most secure and established financially airline in the United States. Uh, It's the largest airline in the world, but they also had a pretty secure financial position before this all happened. Even then, they went out of cash very quickly. And they're all suffering. Their flights are down about 90%. And we are the same. We're trending exactly the same. We're in business, but we are at a substantially reduced schedule. And I would say you know, we and we're a small company, so we would have maybe you know in April. It's not the busiest month of the year. We would have maybe eighty flights on the books for April at this. You know, the week before April starts, and we we literally have three flights. So there's a substantial fall off in business, and and I'm not sure it's coming back this summer. And that's going to be a crisis for us because we make all the money in the summer mostly. Right. So given your experiences that we've spent some time discussing about the the startup process and your own personal transition, how well do you feel you have the the tools and the resources to be able to address some of the business challenges that you're facing right now? So the first is we put in place a exceptional operational team. 
and we didn't always have one. So as an entrepreneur building a business, the, the biggest challenges I have is hiring and firing. It's, it's, it's a painful experience on both sides of the equation. And the hiring process for us has been uh, admittedly sloppy through the years. It, it's their positions that, that are not easy to fill because the technical expertise somebody has to have has to be of a certain level. And there are not a lot of those people out there. Or if they are, they're working for large airlines. However, over the course of about the last two years, we put into place some exceptionally good people who are running the day-to-day operations of the business, have substantial knowledge, and I think have brought the professionalism of the entire operation to a, to a high level. So on that side, I'm confident we have the people in place to be able to work through this, this issue. On the finance side, we, we've honestly received uh, some money from the government through the, you know, the, the, all the programs out there. Plus, we were eligible for the airline relief bill that the Treasury Department has put together. So that will help pay salaries. We haven't let anybody go in this entire environment. We have not let anybody go. We're just not able to hire the additional people we would have normally in the summer months. And so from that perspective, I think we will get through the next four months I just don't know what happens in the fall and going into the winter if the business does not substantially pick up in the summer. And I'm not sure what percentage of the business that is. It could be 50%. It could be 75%. But I don't know what numbers we have to hit just yet to make the business viable come come the winter. I think we're going to need more help. uh, And I think there will probably be put pressure on the government to provide more help. Unless they just let the little guys go, which they bite. Hmm. Okay, so so you believe that people and finances are probably the two biggest ingredients to being able to get through a crisis. I do think so. I, I think it all comes down to people. So the people have to stay. So you can't scare them away. They have to be competent enough to know how to run a business in the most challenging times. And nobody really knows. There's no education for this. I don't think you can go to a class what to do in a global pandemic. But you, So you have to kind of learn on the job. And those people have to be able to pivot and have to be energized to do the work when not necessarily company revenue is coming in, and they they know that. Uh, And so I think we have those people in place right now. We didn't always, and it helps because this company has been very much a one-man show for a long time. And and that's challenging when you're running a high-capitalization service business where you have to go out and actually perform a specific service. You can't do it from your couch, obviously. So I think we have the people in place. I'm, I'm pretty impressed with what they've done so far. Andrew, when you look back on your transition from media to air travel, many people, particularly those that have been in a field for a long time, when they go out on their own, they do something in the same field because that's that's where their skill is, that's what their experience is, that's where their network is. Uh, what advice do you have for someone making a transition, going solo, who may be casting a wide net in terms of their ideas about how to decide where to invest their time and money? Should it be in the same field? Should it be in a different field? And how do you how do you reach the right conclusion that will help you spend time doing what you really enjoy doing, what you're most competent at doing, and then also getting paid sufficiently? Yeah, that that's a really great question. I like to joke with people that I went from the stable media business to the stable aviation business. And and so why did I make that 
that choice. So first, I believe smart people can do anything. Smart people, you know, all the skill sets in whatever business you're in, unless you're actually building manufacturing equipment and have your hands manufacturing equipment, that tool set uh, is kind of inherent in all of us. So I believe if you're smart, that's the first first step. And, and you have to also be willing to be smart enough to step outside the comfort zone. So if you're going to change careers and do something so dramatically, you have to be willing to step outside the comfort zone and then absorb everything you can about that business. So if you're going to change businesses, no matter how old you are, if you can do some sort of internship, get into a company that experiences what you're doing. Now, it's different, obviously, if you're going to be a solo entrepreneur and you're going to be just a consultant. You should still figure out a way to learn that business and absorb all the information you can you can gather. I don't think it's going to take all that long. I think we are generally pretty smart and we're pretty adaptive. And if people say, well, you've just done this your whole life, this is all you know, that's somebody putting you into a box that's just not true. So you you, you have the smarts. And the second part is you have to have the passion. So we got into the aviation business because I knew something about the aviation business. As it turned out, I didn't know most of the aviation business. I knew how to fly an airplane. So I was like, oh, I know how to run an aviation business. I could fly an airplane. It's, it's a terrible idea. But I did have a little, bit, a little bit of knowledge of that. And I did the old turn a hobby into a business concept. But you have to do more than just say, I'm going to turn a hobby into a business concept. You have to have the absolute passion to see the see where you want to go to visualize those results and be able to you literally drag yourself into that position almost every single day. So I, I believe it's possible, uh, and I would encourage people to do it because you know life is about different experiences, and we should all have those experiences. I understand there are other factors that work outside of that. There's family factors and family pressures that may limit those choices, but that's kind of my concept on that. Yeah, I think that's really good advice. So, Andrew, we've covered a lot about your own transition and um, some of the decisions you've made, some of the things that you've learned, and some of uh, you know some of the challenges you faced as well, how you dealt with them. Is there anything else that you would like to mention before we close out the episode? You know, basically visualize if you're going to go into a business on your own, visualize where you want to end up and the goals that you want to accomplish. Start at the end and work your way backwards. Uh, a colleague of mine, actually from WNET and a friend, has o- had always said to me the old line, if you don't know where you're going, all roads will take you there. And that's really true. And I learned that as well, because I used to be so anxious over the day-to-day. We have this crisis. How are we going to get over that? Everything was a fire in my mind. Then I did away with that sort of thinking. I started thinking about the end result. This is where, for this particular project that we may be doing, I want to end up at. Uh, And once you come up with that goal, the obstacles you face getting there become much easier to cross. Uh, That's not to say you don't change the goal where where circumstances may change, but visualize the concept of where you want to be. And then you can work through almost any obstacle. That is great advice. Andrew, if someone wants to learn more about Hopscotch Air or about you or get in touch with you, uh, where would they go? So I would start with our website, flyhopscotch.com. We'll tell you about all the co- about the company. You could also email me at andrew at flyhopscotch.com. 
I'll be happy to talk to anybody who contacts me. Uh, I love talking about this business and I love talking about whatever advice I can help partake and give somebody uh, because I will need some advice in the future myself. Uh, and so I may want to reach out to those individuals as well. Sounds great. Well, Andrew, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to join us today on Going Solo and share your experiences. My guest today has been the CEO and co-founder of Hopscotch Air, Andrew Schmerz. Andrew, thank you again for joining us. David, it's been an honor. Thank you. When you visit the Going Solo website, you'll find a summary of each episode along with the links we mentioned on the show. Today, we learned the most important ingredients to transition from employment into your own healthy business and much more. If you'd like to share your story on Going Solo, or if you know someone who would, please get in touch with me via our website at smashingtheplateau.com. Remember to subscribe on whatever platform you listen on and leave a review if you can. Thank you for taking the time to listen to our show. I'll see you on our next episode.